You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Thanks for being here today. It's wonderful to be here. We're especially uh, thankful to have you if you're a guest today. We appreciate that you would come out and uh, celebrate Easter with us this Sunday. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm just going to sort of do what we always do on a Sunday, which is after singing, we open up the Scripture, and we read a passage of Scripture, and I'll sort of explain it, and then we will apply it. That's what we always always do, seek to learn from God's Word. Uh, If you are new, we'd love to invite you back. Uh, We teach God's Word here every Sunday, and next week we'll be starting a a new series called Grace in the Dark. Grace in the Dark. It's going to be a study of um, Elijah and Elisha, two uh, Old Testament prophets, and it's a section of Scripture that really shows us that when the days are dark and evil, or even when there's darkness in our own hearts and our own lives, that uh, God is with us by his word and by his power. So we'll be looking at grace in the dark starting uh, next week. But today, obviously, we're talking about uh, Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. I I don't know if you heard, but this last week a, a study came out. And it was promoted. It was done by an organization uh, called uh, Smart Asset. And uh, so the study was on the safest cities in America, the safest cities in America. So they had a number of criteria uh, by which they evaluated what, is the, what are the safest and least safe, I suppose, most dangerous uh, cities in the U.S. So they, they looked at things like um, violent crime. Uh, percentage of people that were harmed by violent crime. They looked at property crime, uh, things like burglary and um, robbery, those sorts of things. They looked at uh, vehicular deaths. Uh, They looked at drug overdoses. So anyway, they had a number of different uh, ways that they sought to evaluate what was the safest places to live in the U.S. And I'm happy to announce to you that if you live in Plano, anybody in Plano? There was nobody in the first service either, but okay. If you live in Plano, yeah, somebody said it right over here. Great. Congratulations. Uh, this is good for you. We, uh, Plano is the ninth safest city in all the U.S. Pretty amazing. If you live in McKinney, you live in the second safest city in all of the United States. And if you were here at Grace Church and you live in the 75034 or something close to it, if you live in Frisco, yeah, I represent, uh, you live in the safest city in the United States, Frisco, Texas. Yeah, there was mild applause for that. If you haven't heard about that, you know now and you will be hearing about it because anytime Frisco ranks anywhere, we shout it loud and proud and tell everybody we're the best place to live, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it occurred to me, why is, that, why is there a study like that to begin with? You know what? Why are we even interested in something like that? Why does that matter where a safe place to live is? And I, I think it's because the desire to feel secure And the desire to sort of feel in control, the desire to feel like there's minimal harm and minimal risk around us is one of the strongest human desires. The longing 
for safety and security is something we all live with and spend a lot of our time and money seeking to um, attain safety and security. And in the Easter story that we're about to read today, there's three groups of people, I think, in this story. And two groups of people are chasing safety. They are after security, but it's the third group that finds it. So let's read together. This is, uh, if you brought a Bible, you can look in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. We'll read through uh, chapter 28, verse uh, 15. Listen to this resurrection account from God's holy word. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen As he said, come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Three groups of people in this story. The first group are the religious people. The religious people in this account, they're called the Pharisees and the chief priests, the religious people. As soon as Jesus is dead, they get right to work immediately. 
It's the Sabbath day now. He has been crucified. He has been buried. And they get to work right away. And uh, if there's one thing about religious people, it's that we love to hold other people to a standard that we don't keep ourselves. And that's exactly what they are doing. This is the Sabbath day. It's the day of rest. It's the day when there's not to be any activity. And they're having a business meeting with Pilate, a Gentile, no less. They are working on the Sabbath. And they are seeking to ensure that there is no further spread of the message of Jesus. Uh, they, they They feel a threat by Jesus. All along, Jesus has threatened them and their control and their power, their position as religious leaders. Jesus shows up claiming to be God and bringing great freedom to people. Uh, He frees people from the burdens of all the rules that the religious people put on them and required of them. Jesus comes and, and he is a disruptor of the religious status quo. He's, he's going to people on the margins that the religious leaders would never approach. Uh, the tax collectors, prostitutes, even lepers. Jesus is coming and he's elevating people that the religious leaders often minimized or even ignored. Women and children. Jesus has been an absolute disruptor to their control over the people. And so they feel threatened. They feel a lack of security with Jesus. And so they they go to Pilate, who is a representative of Rome overseeing that that area uh, where Israel is, where, where Jerusalem is. And they tell Pilate, hey, we remember Jesus saying something when he was alive. He was saying that after three days that he would rise from the dead. Uh, And that would be the ultimate threat to their leadership. If someone gets up out of the grave after dying, publicly dying, uh, then that would absolutely be a threat to them. And they want to ensure that with Jesus' death, that his movement dies at the same time. And so they want to uh, ask Pilate if they can do something. Verse 64 said, uh, Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they're saying his whole life and his teaching, it was all fraudulent. But if they steal his body and the tomb is empty, that'll be the greatest fraud of all. And so they want to ensure that it's not stolen because they falsely assume that if the tomb is secure and safe, that they are secure and safe. Well, the next group of people in the story are the, the non-religious people, the non-religious people. When I say that, at least they weren't Jews or they, they weren't believers in Jesus, the, the Messiah, maybe what we'd call secular people today or sort of irreligious people. Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and and the guard, the soldiers that are set before the tomb. Well, they too have an interest in maintaining the status quo. Uh, Pilate is a representative of Rome, and he is tasked with keeping uh, the Jews under uh, under Rome's thumb. 
That's his job, is to sort of keep the peace. And whenever these kind of uprisings of someone like a Messiah, uh, or whenever there are these sort of intramural battles between the Jews, well, the peace is threatened. This is the time of the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. Peace through strength. And if, if there's a loss of peace in Jerusalem in this area, if there's some kind of uprising or riots or anything like that, then that threatens Pilate because uh, he is at risk if there is a loss of peace. And so what does he do? Well, in verse 65, he says, take a guard of soldiers. Take soldiers and go and make the tomb as secure as you can. He is happy to secure the tomb with his own security and safety in mind. He says, make it as secure as you can. I think the language, there's no, ab, there's no accidental words in the Bible. I think the language, the, the verb can is interesting because can is a verb of ability. We all learned that in elementary school. When you ask your teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher said, I don't know. Can you? It's a verb of ability. You're supposed to say, may I? Can is a verb of ability. And so he's saying, make the tomb as secure as you are able. Use your capabilities to secure this tomb as much as is humanly possible. So verse 66 says, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the tomb would have had an opening in it. It would have had a very large stone. Typically, these were stones that were... um, that were somewhat flat, kind of a flatter stone, but very heavy that was placed, um, had a little track and they would roll down the track and uh, close the door. It had been very difficult to push it back up the track after it had rolled down to seal the tomb. So they have a stone there, but they take a cord, they seal it, it says. They take a cord and stretch it out over the stone and it has the wax emblem of the Roman authority on it which is sort of to advertise no trespassing. If you come past this line, you are uh, under the threat of Rome. This, is, this has national uh, seal of uh, protection that may not be broken. And they also put a guard against it. The trained soldiers that protect a corpse uh, in a tomb. Make it as secure as you can. Well, in that day, that's about as secure as you can make it. The threat of a guard, the stone over the opening, and the seal of Rome's power to ward off any would-be thieves. Well, there's the religious people, the non-religious people. The third group of people in the story are followers of Jesus. It says that on the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They are followers of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, in an earlier account in the Gospels, we find out about her, that she had actually been oppressed, uh, inhabited by evil forces, demons. And Jesus had freed her from demons with just the word of his power. And so she is a follower of Jesus, now a free woman. And these two women followed Jesus uh, to his cross. They observed his crucifixion. They followed uh, him to the burial, and they saw where he was buried. And now they are coming, presumably to anoint his body. And when they get there, 
uh, well, there's all kinds of ruckus. There is an earthquake, a great, verse 2, a great earthquake. And then there is an angel of the Lord that descends from heaven, rolls back the enormous stone, and demonstrating the absolute power of God just sits on the throne. And this isn't just some kind of uh, precious moments little ceramic angel or some kind of a cute baby on a cloud. This, this angel is described as, verse 3, his appearance was like lightning. That is blinding. There is a brilliance emanating from the being of this angel. His, his clothes are, are as white as snow. He is gleaming to reflect the glory of God before them. This is a powerful encounter. God is demonstrating that the schemes of the religious leaders are completely impotent up against the power of God. That the the sort of secular strength of an armed guard and even the seal threatening the power of Rome is laughable to God Almighty who moves the stone and simply has his angels sit on top of it. It is a display of the power of God. And the only thing shaking more than the earth at this moment are the guards. Verse four says, for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They are literally shaking in their army boots and they pass out evidently, just fearful of this tremendous, overwhelming manifestation of the glory of God through this angel that has removed the stone. Well, how are they affected by it all? We'll talk about the women in a moment. But how are the guards affected by this this, uh, unmistakable experience of the power of God? They felt the earthquake. They saw the lightning. They saw the angel roll the enormous stone away. They know that the disciples didn't steal the body, that God opened this tomb. It, it It is very clear to them. So surely now they will fear God after this encounter. Surely they will follow Jesus. I mean, surely after an experience like this, you're changed forever. This must mark them for the rest of their lives so that they're headed one way, but now they're turned and heading another way. Surely that is what must happen in a time like this. We, We think that because we all assume that the non-religious person, if they see a miracle that he or she would then begin to believe if they see an undeniable miracle. That's just simply not the case in the Bible. Sure, a small group believe when they see the miracles of Jesus, but thousands of people see the miracles of Jesus. Thousands encounter God Almighty through Jesus And they're wild, but not converted. They go on about their business. That is because we must encounter Jesus by faith. By faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith, to be sure. But it is faith that connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ. A miracle will not overcome the hesitancy to believe for most people. That's the story of the Gospels. That's the story of the book of Acts. Some believe, but many, most, do not. 
And the reason is because we resist Jesus, not because we haven't seen a miracle. We resist Jesus because we don't want to give up control of our lives. That's our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not that I haven't seen a physical miracle before my eyes. My greatest problem is that I think I'm safer running my own life than submitting to him and his word to run my life. Our unbelief is is rooted. It's rooted in our desire to control our own worlds, to write our own story, to be the captain of our own destiny. And that's why even though they see this amazing story, the guards move from shaking and paralyzed like dead men to going and spreading a false story about Jesus, denying that the event ever happened. They report to the religious leaders what happened. They tell the religious leaders this is what happened. And and the religious leaders make them an offer. It's so fascinating. There's no text in here about the religious leaders asking questions. What happened? And what did the the angel said? What? They're not interested in this. They just want the story to be buried, literally. They want the story to be buried. So the religious leaders make them an offer. They offer, well, they offer the soldiers what we all long for. They offer them security. They offer them safety. Look at what they they say. First of all, they offer them money. They offered them a sufficient, it says, that they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Enough money to keep them quiet. And money, after all, makes us feel more secure than anything, right? We all work and save. Why? To achieve financial security. That's the longing of our heart is security. And safety. So they say, you're going to be okay. We're going to take care of you financially. And then they give them a story. They say, just tell people this story, okay? You fell asleep and the disciples came in and stole the body. Just tell that. And then they make them a promise to protect them. Another type of security, to protect them. Listen, if your boss hears about what happened, if it gets to Pilate, that the body's gone. If, they, if he hears about that, we'll cover for you. Do not worry about it. It, it. They say that if it comes to his ears, we will satisfy him. Probably got some money for him too. We will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. That's security. That's job security. Even though you failed on your job, take this money, tell this story, and you will remain safe. Your job is secure and actually your life is secure because you could be killed for uh, allowing a body to be stolen. Uh, so we will cover for you. Job security. They are willing to ignore the most significant event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. Why is it the most significant event in history? Because the resurrection gives validity to Jesus's teaching. In other words, the resurrection is proof that he is who he said he was. Anybody can claim to be God. Anybody can claim anything. But when you die publicly and then are raised from the dead, and Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people, when you promise that you will come back to life and you do, well, there's a credibility to everything that you have said and done at that point. That Jesus, who claimed to be God, to bring the kingdom of God, the power and the presence of God, Jesus, who said that he would die for the sins of God, 
of those who would believe that he would be buried and raised on the third day to defeat sin, to defeat death, to bring life to all who would believe. Jesus, who came to push back the darkness with the promise that one day he would return and make all things new. That's what the resurrection gives validity to. All of those claims and all of those promises, and yet they trade the truth of God. They were there, but they trade the truth of God for a lie. They trade the truth of God for a lie, and it's a foolish lie. By the way, anytime you trade the truth of God for a lie you can live with, it's always foolish. But this is particularly foolish because they say, tell everybody that you were sleeping and his disciples stole the body. If they were sleeping, how would they be able to identify the individuals who stole the body? It's a foolish lie. I mean, how could Galilean fishermen come in and move this stone to get access to the body? How could these fishermen come in and like step over the sleeping soldiers and get the corpse and sneak it out, excuse me, excuse me, sneak it out in the middle of the night so that nobody heard any of this? I mean, they were under threat of death. If, they, if you failed on your job as a guard, it could cost you your life. It, it's likely that someone stayed awake that night. Their lie has all kinds of holes in it. It's not believable. It's not believable, but they were willingly They were willing to trade the truth of God for a lie because they were secured with money. They were secured with a promise that we will take care of you. They trade the truth for a lie. We've we've all done that. Maybe you've heard the message of the resurrection, the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe, Maybe you hear it every Easter. Maybe you've heard it before and you you haven't. Uh, well, you really haven't bought in. You sort of just kept it at arm's length. Maybe you've thought, maybe you're a young person. You've thought, you know, I've got time to figure this out. Last thing I'm really worried about right now is someone who died and purportedly came back to life 2,000 years ago. I got a lot of things to figure out in life. I'll figure that out later. Well, that can be a lie that we believe that we have the time or we'll have the interest or we'll have the opportunity later. Maybe you have heard the message of his death and resurrection, but you've just thought, this isn't really relevant for me. And you believe the deception that this historical event really has very little meaning or significance for you. And yet, if Jesus claimed to be God, and if he actually rose from the dead, then that validates his teaching and his claims, and you would not want to ignore the words of this man, Jesus. It's either true or it's not. And if it's not, then we should go on about our business. We should find another philosophy. We should break right now, go home and have ham, hunt some eggs, and go on with our lives. But if it's true that Jesus did come back from the dead, then, then there's no, nothing more important for us to consider today. C.S. Lewis, you may know that name, is the author of the children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia. He once said the following, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
It's either false and it is not important at all. Or it's true and it has ultimate importance for each of us today. The thing it can't be is something that happened that's just sort of out there that, you know, I'll pay attention to at another time. No, the, the empty tomb is urgent and pleads, God pleads for your attention. I plead for your attention from his word to this matter, that the God-man is alive. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he should be supremely important to each of us. He, he was supremely important to the two Marys. Look what happens with them in this story. The angel says to them in verse 5, do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. The angel says, come into the tomb and see he is not here. He doesn't call them to a blind faith. He offers some evidence. Another gospel tells us that Jesus' grave clothes are in there. And so they, they see that he is gone, that he is not in there. They saw the stone move, and they see that he is obviously left before then uh, in his resurrection body. He is out, and so he is no longer there. And so the angel says, go tell his disciples. And so they run to do so. The Bible says, uh, this text says, verse 8, they departed quickly with fear and great joy. Fear because they've just seen this lightning angel, uh, so scary that trained Armin, uh, uh, Roman soldiers have passed out. That scary. Uh, so that's why they have fear. But they have great joy because they assume that the crucified one will be there in the grave. And he is not And so they are joyful that Jesus is alive. And then I love this, verse 9. As they are running, they depart quickly, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them. He shows up and says to them, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They see the resurrected Lord. They hit the ground. They grab hold of his feet and they worship him. And they are at the safest spot in creation. They are at the most secure spot possible. At the feet of the one who has defeated death. You know, whether you believe the Bible or not, you would certainly agree with this. That our greatest enemy as humans, our greatest enemy is death. It's the one thing we cannot control It's the one thing we cannot escape. It's the one thing we cannot fix. It's the one thing that's coming for everybody in the room, some of us sooner than later, uh, but it's coming. Death is our great enemy, and Jesus, raised from the dead, is the one who has defeated death. And so they are clinging to the one who has defeated their greatest enemy, This Jesus, they're in the safest place of all. They're not at this moment seeking security like the religious leaders in their behavior, in their morality, in their rules and regulations, in their faithfulness to the religious practices. They're not clinging to that. They're not like the secular people in the story, clinging clinging to their own strength, their own ability, their own power, their own nation. Who can, who can keep the, the tomb sealed. Rome has the power to do that, the most powerful nation in the world. They're not clinging to physical strength or national strength. They're clinging to the one 
who has died for their sins and been resurrected to new life. Where could you possibly be safer than at the feet of the one who created everything that is? The one who spoke and all things came into existence. The God who chose Israel and was faithful to them through the generations. The God, Jesus Christ, who came, the God-man, who taught truth, who loved perfectly, who laid down his life as a sacrifice, and who was raised again. The one who promises to return and make all things new. The one who says that he will return and usher in life as it was meant to be lived. The word for that in the Old Testament is shalom. It is a life of perfect flourishing as life as it was meant to be lived without sin, sorrow, or suffering. This one who will usher in the new heaven and new earth, how could you be more safe than being at his feet and hearing him say these words, verse 10, do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, I have you. You may think you're clinging to me, but do not be afraid. You are safe because I'm clinging to you, holding you ultimately. You are safe with me. Jesus doesn't promise us a life of safety where we experience no risk, no danger, no problems, no suffering. But he does promise this. The Bible says that for those who believe in Jesus and who are in relationship with him, that even our sufferings have meaning, that God will take our sufferings and that he will use them for our good. Somehow he turns our sufferings into something for our good and for his glory. He promises that he will be with us in our sufferings as well, that he will be present with us that we find safety and security in him. Do you know that safety today? Do you know that lasting, eternal security? Well, you can. You can turn like the believing women in the story and believe in the resurrected Jesus as well. Not only can, you should turn and believe in him. It means acting different than the other folks in the story. It means turning away from your religious works. It means, it means turning away from the hope that you can be right with God based on what you do or what you're not doing. That's usually the way we think of it. None of us think we're that holy in what we do, but we can look and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I don't do that. So we think we're holy enough because of what we avoid, but the Bible is clear that none of us can be holy enough to be right with God. If you could, then Jesus would never have needed to come and die. If you could reach God on your own behavior, behavior, we didn't need Good Friday. There's no need for a crucified Savior and one who is raised to defeat death. We also must turn, like the secular people in the story, turn from our own self-protection, our own self-effort, that we can sort of manage on our own. It's denying that and humbling ourselves and saying, no, I cannot manage on my own. I need the God who created me. We live so much of our life trying to be safe, trying to be secure, trying to protect ourselves. But you know, there's coming a day when no one in the room will be able to protect themselves. We don't talk a lot about this in our culture. 
And even in the church, in churches, we don't, we don't talk a lot about this, but the Bible is clear, and Jesus talks about it strongly, that there is coming a day of judgment when every person who has ever lived will stand before God and give an account for their lives. And we will not be able to protect ourselves from his judgment. We won't be able to say, look at my religious works. Wasn't I good enough? We won't be able to have the insurance to sort of protect ourselves from the judgment that we deserve. We won't be able to. We'll be stripped bare, so to speak, standing before God on our own two feet with our own lives as our only record before us. And in that day, there will be no one who will be able to say, I'm safe because I have a Frisco address. That's pure silliness. There'll be no one to say, hey, I'm safe, I'm, in, I'm secure, I got a big fat 401k. There'll be no one who'll be able to say, I'm safe and secure, look at my healthy body. I can stand for this one. No one. No one will be able to lean on the security of friends and family in that moment. All the things that we lean on to hold us up will be gone and it will just be our lives before the holy God of the universe. And the only people that are safe in that day are like the women, those who have clung to Jesus, the resurrected king as their savior. Those who have believed in his word that he died for sinners, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day to defeat our greatest enemy, death. Those in Jesus are welcomed before the Father in the new heaven and new earth to live life in glory as it was meant to be. And those who have trusted their own religious works, who've trusted in themselves for safety and security, will find they have neither. But for eternity, they will face the condemnation, the duly and justly deserved condemnation of God. He says, do not be afraid because he is our only safety. He is our only security. He is our only protection. There's a word in the Bible used to describe God. It's found in the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible. It's found there a lot. And it's this word. It's a metaphor that says God is our refuge. A refuge is a place you run for shelter and safety when you are in danger. And these women have found the refuge. They found the one who is life. They found the safest spot in the world at the feet of the resurrected Christ. And God calls us all to run for shelter. You know, run for shelter. We don't think we're vulnerable, but we are vulnerable. The siren warnings are going constantly. We are vulnerable to the face of God before whom we will stand one day. And so we must run to shelter, to the loving embrace of Jesus who welcomes anyone who will come to him. He said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them away. If you want to come to Jesus, he welcomes you. He will not cast you away. With open arms, he welcomes you into his embrace, forgiving all of your sins and giving you the sure promise Not that you'll have a little financial security, not that you'll have a little job security like the guards, but that you will have eternal security in his presence with him forever. And all you must do is turn and believe. Turn from your works, turn from your sins, turn to Jesus, 
and say, I entrust myself wholly to you. I believe you are the risen king. Let's pray, and you can even do that right now. Entrust yourself to him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.